convictions can tell us a lot about a person. Think about the introduction given to a speaker in an event like a graduation or the introduction of an author to an author in a book. While the introduction tells us something about the person's life and experience, its main purpose is to explain to us why we should listen to this person or read their book. The introduction is meant to make us perk up our ears and and think, I need to hear what this person has to say or I need to read what this person has to say. The introduction can be crucial because a missed opportunity in the introduction can mean the listener tunes out or the reader puts the book back down. There's a short window of opportunity to tell the listener why they should pay attention. Today we're going to start a, a lengthy study in the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John is, of course, a record of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And John knows the importance of introductions as he sits down to write this account of the words, life, and ministry, and death of Jesus. So he opens up his gospel with an introduction that would be sure to capture capture the attention of his intended audience. Go ahead and open your Bible to John chapter 1, verse 1, page 809 in your pew Bibles. We can study that introduction today. When you find that, I ask you to stand on the reading of God's Word. John 1 and 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him and without Him was nothing made that was made. In Him was life and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came into his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe on his name, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The title of the message is Introducing Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, we love You today. You are great and awesome and worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. And Father, we want to know Jesus better. We want to be able to have a deeper relationship with Him, to be better able to go out into a lost and a dying world And just to let our light shine, to let people see Christ in us, Father. So God, today we ask you as we look at this passage of Scripture that your Holy Spirit would open our hearts and open us our minds. That we could receive your word. And that God, that we would be focused upon you and we would have tender hearts and that your word would sink into our hearts and and bring forth fruit. God, you know the issues and the concerns and, and just everything about our lives that we have when we came in today. Father, help us to to begin to understand why Jesus is so important. Help us to begin to understand how He can help us in these areas. Help us, God, to to grow in our faith and our trust in Him. Help us to be more like Him each and every day of our lives. Fill me today with Your Holy Spirit that I could speak Your words and Your ways and that You would be glorified. Help me not to be a hindrance in any way to what You want said or what You want done. We love You, Jesus, and we want we just want to know You better. Speak to us today, we ask in, in your name and for your sake. Amen. Right, you may be seated. Well, like all gospel accounts, John wrote several years after Jesus had died, risen, and ascended into heaven. And he wrote for many reasons. And one of which was to confront a problem 
of how to introduce Christianity and thus Jesus to those who were not Jewish. You know, if we're not careful, we forget that Jesus was a Jew through his human lineage. The vast majority of his ministry was spent in Judea. And not only was Jesus a Jew, but all 12 apostles were Jews. And nearly all the initial members of the early church were Jews. And since Christianity began among the Jews, it typically spoke the Jewish language and it used a Jewish way of thinking. But while Christianity started among the Jews, it didn't stay there. Not long after the day of Pentecost, Christianity began to spread to the larger world. It traveled through Asia Minor, Greece, and eventually arrived in Rome. And eventually, the number of non-Jewish Christians outnumbered Jewish Christians. William Barclay said by AD 60, there must have been 100,000 Greeks in the church for every Jew who was a Christian. Now, this was somewhat problematic because Jewish theology, mindset, and way of life was completely foreign to the Greek world. The Greeks had no concept or concern of a Jewish Messiah. The Greeks had never read the Jewish Old Testament and so had no foundation for thinking of the one true God who was Lord over all. And while these ideas were foundational to Jewish thought, they were completely foreign to Greek thought. So how could Jewish Christians present their Messiah to non-Jews in a way that not only made sense, but made him seem important? Enter the Apostle John. And his account of Jesus' words, life, ministry, and death. John knows that his introduction of Jesus is critical to the Jews and the Greeks alike paying attention to Jesus. John knows that Jesus is the most important person who has ever lived. And everyone needs to know about him and believe in him. So John introduces Jesus in a way that was very different from the other gospel writers. And would make those who read it see that they must pay attention to Jesus. John's introduction to Jesus lays a foundation for the rest of his gospel and reveals three compelling reasons why we should pay attention to the words, life, ministry, and death of Jesus. Number one, Jesus is our God. Now, who is Jesus? And that's the most important question that we can ever answer. It's a question that each one of us will answer at one point or another. We can answer the question in this life or we can wait and answer it in the life to come. The reality is that our eternal destiny hangs on the way that we answer this question and when we answer it. So the question comes, how how is a person who lived thousands of years ago so important? Well, it's because Jesus wasn't just a person who lived thousands of years ago. Jesus is God. Jesus is not a God, but he is the the one true God. That is John's point in in verses 1 through 3. In verse 1 through 4, notice that he says in verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Right? Jesus is God. And, and, and in order to, to drive that home, John describes Jesus in these verses in several ways. That for the Jewish mind, it would drive home Old Testament references to make them see how Jesus is the fulfillment. How things that were said about God in the Old Testament are also said about Jesus in the New. It was also made to make Greeks pay attention and think that Jesus was very different than their gods that they worship. And he tells us first that Jesus is eternal. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. He was in the beginning with God. Right now, if you've read through the Bible, if you've started your read through the Bible in a year this year, you've read Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John very intentionally uses the same words. 
John is hearkening back to that time before, before anything was. Before the worlds were, before the stars were, before people were. There was God. And at that same time with God, there was Jesus. And he's wanting them to understand that Jesus did not come into being one night in Bethlehem. He wants them to know that Jesus has always existed. Right? The idea of in the beginning, it's that he was there. That in the beginning, before the beginning in fact, when God determined to, to create the world, to make the things that were, Jesus was right there with him. Now again, to the Jewish mindset, it was significant. Because only God was considered to be eternal in the Old Testament. To the Greek mindset, this was significant. Because their gods weren't necessarily eternal. Right? Most accounts of creation in pagan mythologies have in their core a some way where the gods also came into being. So a, a God that is eternal and Jesus being there with him, well now that... That's powerful. That's, that's important. But not only is Jesus eternal, but Jesus is creator. In verse 3 it says, All things were made through Him. And without Him nothing was made that was made. And in the beginning God created. And the Jews, they understood that God was the creator of all things. And John takes that idea and he says that Jesus was the agent of creation. That nothing and all of creation that exists, exists apart from the creative power of Jesus. Whether it's spiritual, whether it's physical, whether it's angelic, or whether it's human. Jesus is the creator of it all. We saw in the, the passage in Hebrews that I read at the start of the service, that Jesus is the creator and the sustainer. All there is. Again, to the Jewish mindset, this is like, wow, you're, you're, you're really saying... Jesus is God because only God is the creator. And the Greeks didn't understand Jewish thought, but they understood that it took a God to create the material world that we saw. So he's saying Jesus is God. But not only is Jesus eternal and creator, but Jesus is life. Or, or maybe I should say Jesus is the source of life. In verse 4, in him was life. And the life was the light of men into the Jewish mindset, that was significant. The Jews understood that God created and sustained life. The Jews understood that all life was dependent upon God, giving them life and breath and all things. And John says, Jesus does that. That, that abundant life, that's found in Jesus. New life, that's found in Jesus. Eternal life, that's found in Jesus. Jesus is the giver of all life. The Greeks, again, they would have understood the concept that only a God could give life. They would have understood the concept of the significance of a person who can create and sustain and give life and breath to all things. It is, and I know we know. I doubt anybody here is going, man, I never really knew Jesus was God. We know that. But when we start to think about why we should pay attention to Jesus, I mean, why do a long study of the Gospel of John? It's all about the words, the life, the ministry, and the death of Jesus. It's because He's not just a guy. He is God. And, and this is taught all throughout. The Apostle Paul would go on to say 
that it pleased the Father that in Jesus all the fullness should dwell. Now, the idea of fullness is that everything that makes God God was fully present in Jesus. Right? So, anything you can think about God in the Old Testament, anything you can think about the power, the majesty, the glory, the greatness, the, uh, the sovereignty, the, the anything about God in the Old Testament, anything that's ever taught about God, that is in Jesus. That exists in Him. Right? Again, the Bible teaches that if you want to know what God is like, study what Jesus is like. Jesus perfectly reveals the Father to us. And the idea of dwell is that it's not something that's added. But it's not that God saw that there was a guy who was great. And God looked at him and said, that guy, I'm going to give him something special. I'm going to put my character and my nature and my attributes in him. And he'll stand out and be great then. No, dwell means it was already a part of who he was. It's not something that was added to Jesus. Jesus wasn't just a guy that was baptized by the Holy Spirit and and learned how to fully live a Spirit-filled and Spirit-led life. No, Jesus was and is God. That's a part of who He always was. It's a part of who He always will be. Jesus is the one and only true God. And since He is our God, that makes His his words, that makes them pretty significant. That makes His life pretty significant. That makes His ministry pretty significant. And that makes His death pretty significant. And we should pay attention to Jesus. Secondly, Jesus is our God, but Jesus is also our Savior. But any discussion about who Jesus is, it always has to get around to why He came. Because that's the key to it all. Jesus, His coming to earth was intentional for a reason. He came to earth to be our Savior. I mean, we know. We just came through Christmas, and so we looked at the Christmas accounts, and we know... That Jesus was born to the family of Mary and Joseph. And, and we know that Jesus, his birth wasn't like their idea. I mean, he, he didn't come about because they were married and they loved each other and they wanted to have a kid. And, and God just chose him to be special. In fact, Jesus' birth into their lives really kind of upset everything about their lives. They were... Not quite married yet. And, and then Mary came up pregnant and said it was God who had done it. And, and Joseph, of course, like most people, didn't really think that was a true story. And so he was going to cancel the wedding and put it all off. And, and the angel came to him. And the angel said, nope, Mary's telling you the truth. This child is, is not your average kid. Didn't come about in the average way. The power of the Holy Spirit has overshadowed her. What is being born of her is the Son of God. It's the Messiah. And he said he comes to save people from their sins. That's what he came for. That was the main thrust of his life and ministry was the redemption, man, the salvation of the world. That's what his death was about. He died 
to pay the penalty that our sins deserved. And He rose again on the third day and He offers salvation to all who will believe. Which is pretty awesome. But notice in verse 10. He was in the world. The world was made through Him. The world did not know Him. And He came to His own and His own did not receive Him. I mean, you would think that that everybody would just want Jesus who came to bring salvation. Sadly, that's not the case. Sadly, there are many that have lived and died while rejecting Jesus. And and it was true in His day. Jesus, He lived. And He lived a perfect life. But he He never unjustly gropped anybody out. He never acted in His anger. He never told inappropriate jokes. He never, never just did anything wrong. And all that he did was good. All that he did was helpful. He did miracles that, that fed people. He healed those that were sick. He raised the dead to life. He taught deep and important truths. He, he went to the, the sinners and he said, God still loves you and God still wants you to be a part of his life and God wants to be a part of your life. And despite all the good that he did, The majority rejected him. He was rejected by some that were Jews. I mean, the people that should have known him best. The people that should have been best prepared for his coming. That should have seen his life and miracles and recognized this is the coming Messiah. Those people rejected him. Well, if those people rejected him, it's no shock that some of the Gentiles also rejected him. They thought his stories and his life was somewhat crazy. And there was just no way to buy into that. So many rejected him, but not everybody did. He says in verse 12, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. See, some people saw what he did, heard what he taught, and just recognized from his life he was different. And they believed him. And those that believed him, he changed them. They were never the same again. And notice what it says. They became the children of God who were born... Not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now, what he's saying is this. The change that was made in them, it wasn't them. And it wasn't that they turned over a new leaf. It wasn't that they reformed their lifestyles. It wasn't they made New Year's resolutions to be better. Something beyond them happened to them and forever changed their lives. And they were born again. And their lives were never same. And he did it to people from all walks of life. But the Bible tells us about a a tax collector who heard Jesus was coming to town. And he wanted to see him. So he he climbed up in a tree to watch him. And he was a chief tax collector. And he was rich, the Bible says. Now these are significant details. Because a tax collector, well, they were pretty despised. Right now, you may not like the IRS, but we don't dislike the IRS nearly as much as the Jews despise tax collectors. And here's the reason. 
One, a tax collector was a Jew who was working for Rome, and they were all crooked. I see a, like a chief tax collector. Chief tax collector would be over Gaiman. And his job would be to collect $10 million from Gaiman to send to Rome. Now, Rome didn't care how they got the $10 million. And Rome didn't care if they collected $15 million. All Rome cared about was collecting $10 million. So the tax collectors, what they did was they had big thugs that worked with them. And they would shake people down. Scott, according to the role, you would owe $1,000. But I think you should pay 5000 just because I think you're ugly. Not really, but you know. And, and if Scott couldn't pay 5000 they'd take whatever they could. And where could he go? What, what recourse did he have? The courts were Romans. Well, I think the Roman tax collector took too much. I don't care. Get out of here. For I throw you in jail. And so if, if, if the tax collectors could take more than they were supposed to take, they got to keep it themselves. And they did. I mean, a position like that just doesn't cater to good, moral people. Honesty and tax collections were like Microsoft Works. It was an oxymoron. It just wasn't the way the world was. And so the tax collectors abused their position. And the tax collectors took more than they had. And they became rich off the oppression of their own people. So, I mean, imagine the Taliban conquers the United States. And Bridge goes to work for him as a tax collector. Who's going to be his friend? I'm not. An unjust tax by a wicked ruling empire? I think not. That's what they were. And so they, they stole, they took. It was terrible. And this tax collector, but he wanted to see Jesus. And the Jews, the good Jews, had said that tax collectors, they were just people that God wanted nothing to do with. They, they had no part in the kingdom of God and they never could. Right? It wasn't that while they were tax collectors, they were excluded. But once someone became a tax collector, they were forever gone. They were never welcomed in the synagogues again. They were never welcomed in the temple again. They could not be a part of it. But Jesus invited himself to this tax collector's home to eat a meal with him, which was unheard of. And that guy believed Jesus. And the Bible said that after he believed Jesus, this is what happened. Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor. And if I've taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore it fourfold. Now, that's huge. Right? First off, donating half his goods to the poor, that was a lot. I mean, that was a lot of money and nothing that the law required. The law required you to, to help, to, to give alms to the poor, to help the widows and the fatherless. But a specific amount wasn't really set for something like that. To give half. Well, that was, that was radical. That was crazy. Normal people didn't do that. And then, if he had taken anything from anyone by false accusation, which he had, he would restore it fourfold. It's also pretty huge. 
The law did not demand that kind of restoration at all. I think in some cases the law demanded a double restoration. That was rare. But a fourfold restoration. Now, that was not anything that the law demanded. This guy, he was changed. He was, he was different. This wasn't him reforming himself. Because as a tax collector, he wouldn't have thought to do that. Even though he did this, the people still weren't going to receive him. This wasn't going to make him a popular guy. This wasn't going to make him accepted by the people. But he didn't care about that. He wanted Jesus to know that he had changed. He wanted Jesus to see what a difference Jesus had made in his life. He was born, not of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And it forever changed his life. There's another guy the Bible talks about. He was, well, he was a Pharisee. And he was a religious leader. And he was on the fast track to success. And he was zealous for the things of God. Now you would think, zealous for the things of God, committed to the Word of God, he should have jumped right in and believed in Jesus. But that wasn't what happened. He was one of the many that rejected Jesus. But not only did he reject Jesus, he kind of developed a, a hatred for the church. In a way, he made it his personal ambition to stamp out Christianity. And he determined that he would bring people up before the Jewish courts in such a way that they would have a choice. They could renounce Jesus or they could die. And he did. And he didn't just do it in Jerusalem. He got letters from the other religious leaders that gave him authority over Jews in any province in the Roman world. And he went to where they were. And he grabbed not only men, but women. And again, that's one of those things where we don't think much about. But in, in this day, it wasn't really expected that the women would have their own particular convictions and standards. They would follow their husbands. So if a husband converted to Christianity, it was expected the wife would too. So to stop it, you took the husband, and then the wife would convert back to Judaism. But not this guy. He wanted to punish everybody. Everybody that proclaimed the name of Jesus. So he went and got women, as well as the men. And he ordered their execution as well. Think about it. I mean, let's not gloss over the fact that he caused people to die. Men and women were stoned to death at His command. That's rough. I mean, He would be on a terrorist watch list if He lived today. Because He was a religious zealot that killed people for not being a part of His religion. Then one day, He also met Jesus. And it changed everything. And not long after meeting Jesus... He was going somewhere to, to preach the gospel. Somebody told him, the Lord told me, that if you go there, it's going to be bad. Trouble, persecution, beatings, rough life. It's waiting on you. And here's what he said. My life is worth nothing to me unless I use it for finishing the work assigned me by the Lord Jesus, the work of telling others the good news about the wonderful grace of God. What a change. He, he was willing to suffer for the sake of Christ. 
Or just years before, he had wanted to kill anyone who professed the name of Christ. Now he himself was willing to die for Christ. This wasn't a personal reformation. This was, he was born again. He was changed from the inside out. He was never the same. And then there was a guy who came to Jesus and he was a religious leader. He was a good guy. He wanted to know about what Jesus was doing and who Jesus was. And and he told him, he said, you know, we recognize that you have to be from God because nobody could do the things that you do unless they come from God. And this guy was, I mean, he was a good person. But I mean, he's the kind of guy you wanted to be your neighbor. You know, if you went out of town for the weekend, he was the guy you wanted picking up your mail and you'd give a key to your house because you knew everything would be okay when you came back. He wouldn't pilfer or fiddle or take or mess with anything. He would do what is good. And and, and despite the goodness of this guy, here's what Jesus told him. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He told that guy, he said, you know what? You're not going to make it like you are. You need to be born again. As I thought about that, you know what I realized is, we all need to be born again. If I'm a dirty, rotten sinner, I need to be born again through faith in Jesus. And I can be born again through faith in Jesus. If I'm religious... And even if I'm committed to my religion, guess what I need? I still, I still need to be born again through faith in Jesus Christ. And I can be born again through faith in Jesus Christ. And if I'm a good person, good old boy, help you out, give you the shirt off my back, drive out in the blinding snow to get you out of a snowstorm, guess what I still need? I need to be born again through faith in Jesus Christ. We all need that. Without exception. Each and every person in this room and each and every person in this world needs to be born again. And he offers that. Jesus offers this to each and every person. And if we accept it, his offer, we believe in him, we are born again. The Bible says that we are a new creation. With a new righteousness and a new home and a new father. God becomes our father. You see, Jesus alone can do this. No one but Jesus can save a soul. No one but Jesus can forgive sins. No one but Jesus can cause a person to be born again and changed from the inside out. And since Jesus alone can save... And since Jesus alone can change, that makes Him pretty important. And so we ought to pay attention to His words because they teach us something. We need to pay attention to His life because it shows us something. We need to pay attention to His ministry because it helps us. We need to pay attention to His death. He he is significant. And then finally, Jesus is our God. Jesus is our Savior. Jesus is our example. 
again, we just came through Christmas, and so we know where we've just been talking about Jesus coming to earth. And one of the things I think about with this is the, the relationship aspect of Christianity. I mean, Jesus really didn't come to start a new religion, so to speak. He didn't came, come to, to tell us, give us a bunch of rules to live by. Not really. He, he came to make it possible for us to be reconciled to God. For us to know God. For us to love God and to experience God's love for us. I mean, that was a part of the very beginning when the angel talked to Joseph. He told him that Jesus would be called Emmanuel, meaning God with us. And Jesus came to be, to be with us. I mean, he left the, the glories of heaven and he came to earth where we are to live among us, to, to show us things. And that's what John brings out in verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory is the only begotten of the father, full of grace, truth. Now, the word which was in the beginning with God and which was God became flesh, dwelt among us. You think about that. Jesus is God. So like if we were to look at Revelation 4, Isaiah 6, see the angels worshiping the being on the throne and the description of the glory and the majesty of that being. That's Jesus. And he left that to come here to a world filled with sin, suffering. To a, to a people that would often reject him and ignore him and make light of him. And while he came, he, he was 100% man. He felt temptation, hunger, pain, fear, concern, weariness, thirst, just like anyone else. At the same time, he, he, he never ceased to be 100% God. He was still omniscient. He was still all-powerful. Nothing that happened to him could have happened to him had he not allowed it. When they came to take him away to the cross, he didn't need Peter to draw a sword and cut off a dude's ear. He could have blinked that guy out of existence. He could have called for legions of angels to come and defend him. He could have killed them all with a thought. He was always still God. But he came to be here among us. That's the miracle of the incarnation. He, he came here and he dwelt among us. And dwelt could be translated as tent tabernacle in the Greek Old Testament it's translated as it's the same word used for the tabernacle so the idea is that he lived here among us he, he was here and he lived among us and part of what this shows us is that Jesus isn't just a God that's above us he's a God that's with us he, he was physically with them for this period of time here but now He's spiritually with us as He indwells us through His Holy Spirit after we believe and, and are born again. He, and the great thing is, 
once Jesus is with us, he promises never to leave us nor forsake us. He is always here. Now, you're thinking, man, that's, that is good news, I hope. But how does that relate to Jesus being our example? And I want to explain that Jesus came on a mission. He came for a purpose. And to accomplish this mission, He came here and lived among us. Now, I don't know if there were any other ways Jesus could have accomplished the mission. I don't know what kind of other ways there might have been or if there were other ways. I just know the way He chose. The way He chose was to leave the comfort and the glories and the ease of heaven and come to a world filled with sin and suffering to save us. That's what He did. And His mission, he, He lived among us. And as He lived among us, He found ways to fulfill this mission in various ways. I mean, have you ever thought about how how few times Jesus really set out to do what He did? I mean, think about the story of the woman at the well. What a great story. The grace of Jesus. But you know what He was doing there? He was on His way somewhere else. And He stopped at the well because He was tired and thirsty. And His disciples went into town to get some food. And while he was there, a woman came up to him that desperately needed to know about the grace of God. That desperately needed to know that God loved her and she could have a relationship with him. And so he took advantage of that and he showed her who he was in a measure and told her about the coming Messiah, that he was that Messiah. Jesus just went away with his disciples after a busy time and was just going to kind of rest, recuperate before going back out for ministry again and And crowds of people followed him. And they were far away from a town and they were hungry. And there just happened to be a boy there with some bread and some fish. And it gave Jesus an opportunity to kind of show them who he was. By multiplying the bread and the fish so everyone could have something to eat. He was just on a boat going across the Sea of Galilee. When a storm came up. And he was even resting. He wasn't even all that concerned. But a storm came up. Scared the disciples. Gave him an opportunity to, to kind of show them who he was. As he said, peace be still and make the storm stop. He just lived his life. And opportunities to fulfill his mission came up. I want us to look at a passage that shows us how important his mission was to him. Flip ahead to John 17. John 17 is the longest recorded prayer of Jesus. And we're not going to look at the whole thing, just a few select verses. Look first at verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. Now look down at verse 8. For I have given them the words which you have given to me, and they have received them, and know surely that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Now verse 21. But they may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, 
they may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And in verse 23, I and them and you and me, they may be perfect in one. The world may know that you have sent me. And then verse 25, O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. And these have known that you sent me. Now, there's five verses in just 25 verses where Jesus focuses on his mission. And the idea of being sent there is very similar to what we saw in John chapter 1 and verse 14. The word became flesh, dwelt among us. That's what he was. He was sent from heaven to earth to fulfill a mission. But in the midst of all of this prayer about his mission, Jesus says something interesting in his prayer. Look at verse 14. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, and I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, that you should keep, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, I also have sent them to the world. Jesus was sent into the world for a mission, and we are sent to carry on that mission. His mission is to save sinners. And our mission is to do the same. To help them come to know Him so that they can be saved. We are to carry out that mission. But here's the thing. We can't fulfill this mission if we never leave our safe Christian bubble. We're not going to fulfill that mission sitting in here in the pews. This mission is out there. And our job isn't necessarily to go stand on the, preach cor- the street corner and preach. It's not necessarily to go and knock doors and ask them if they know about Jesus Christ. Our job is to follow His example. To live in the world, but not of the world. Right? He didn't pray that we'd be taken out of the world. We're not supposed to be living... In a commune. We're not supposed to be living in a safe, clean, Christian world. We are supposed to be living out among the lost, the sinners, the wicked, because they're the ones that need Him. And we're to to live among them as Jesus lived among us. And as we go through life, opportunities will arise. For us to show them Jesus. It may be an opportunity for us to pray for them. It may be an opportunity for us to to tell them our testimony about who Jesus is and and what He has done for us. It may be an opportunity to to give them a cup of cold water in Jesus' name to help them in a hard time to listen to their struggles. To just share the gospel with them. To invite them to church. But as we live our lives, We are meant to follow His example and be on that mission and do what we can to help a lost and a dying world come to know Jesus Christ. Here's the thing though. As Jesus said here, we're to be in the world but not of the world. I don't know how to do that exactly. I've heard that my whole life and I still don't know that I can fully explain what it means and how to do it and and how to find the boundaries that you have to have. 
Because even Jude talks about snatching them like a, like a brand from the fire, but, but not to get dirty by their sin. How do we do that? I don't know. Holy. I know this, though. Jesus did it perfectly. He's our example. And I guess if we're to fulfill that mission, we better pay special attention to his words because he taught how to do that. We better pay special attention to his life and ministry because he did that. He, he lived sinlessly in a sinful world. was always among them without becoming one of them. We need to follow his example. And to do that, we need to pay special attention to his words, his life, to his ministry. That's why we're doing a study in the Gospel of John. To, to equip us, help us, to be better able to follow his example. Because there is a whole world of people in Gaiman that need Jesus. You know, we live in Oklahoma and the Bible Belt. Man, the, the days of Beaver, leave it to Beaver, they're gone. And they are not ever coming back. We do not live in a world anymore that has a nominal understanding of the gospel. We do not live in the world anymore that recognizes the difference between us and the Westboro Baptist Church. The world does not, it's different. We can't live like we're in the 1950s anymore. We have to move to the future where we are. We have to live in the world and follow Jesus' example without being of the world so that they can come to know Jesus Christ. Because the fact is, they're not coming to church. I doubt there's over 2,000 people in Gaiman today that are in church, in any of the churches in Gaiman. That still leaves thousands sitting at home with no concern, no care, no worries. Just any more to say, well, the church doors are open. They know we're here. They can come. I don't know if that ever worked or not, but it certainly doesn't work nowadays. They need us to live among them like Jesus did. They need us to live among them and take advantage of opportunities that they will give us to show them Jesus, to tell them about Jesus, to lead them to Jesus. You've got to follow his example. I read something this week and it said that Christianity, if Christianity is true, it is of ultimate importance. If Christianity is not true, it is of no importance. The only thing Christianity cannot be is of moderate importance. I think the same is true about Jesus. If what we've looked at this morning from the Gospel of John is true about Jesus, that He, he is our God and the only God, and He is our Savior and the only Savior, and He is our example and, and the best example, then He is of ultimate importance. If those things are not true, then it's just a story. And he's no more important than any other story, any other person, any other story ever. He's of no importance. The only thing Jesus cannot be in our lives is of moderate importance. You and I, we have to choose what we believe. If I believe that Jesus is God, and if I believe that he is my Savior, then he has to be of ultimate importance to me. There is no moderate middle ground 
in the Bible. He is either ultimate or He is nothing. What do our lives show that He is? Let's stand as our musicians come forward.